Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Squad Room, the podcast devoted to creating and optimizing a healthy and fulfilling life for first responders all around the world. If this is your first time listening, thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Garrett Teslaw. I'm a sergeant for a sheriff's department in Southern California. And this squad room little experiment is where I try to talk to experts in a variety of fields looking for those force multipliers that I can apply to my own life. My goal is to help make you and me happier and healthier so we can pursue our challenging careers with energy, clarity, and a commitment to our oath. Our guest today is Jeff Halstead, former chief of Fort Worth PD. Fantastic conversation about leadership and surviving a 30-year career, having a happy marriage, what it takes to be a leader versus a manager versus a supervisor. This is one of those episodes about just pretty much straight up about leadership and uh, and his perspective on where uh, policing needs to go. Jeff, since he retired, uh, has founded an organization called HopeForBlue.org. And the organization actually does much more than I ever thought it did uh, before we started this conversation. Jeff and I got connected up through a listener and uh, got put in touch with each other. And we've been sharing emails back and forth. And luckily, we were able to have a conversation about it today. And, you know, I, I like having chiefs on. I like having high-ranking chiefs, sheriffs on because uh, they have perspective that I don't have. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for someone who can give me some tips after 30 plus years in law enforcement how to survive this career. You know, I have some advice. I can give a rookie some advice after 10, 11 years, but I don't have that long view. And so I'm looking for, that's why I'm talking to these people. I want to figure out this long view. What, what makes them successful in different areas? And that doesn't mean just promoting up, but as the chief mentions, married 30 plus years. And to be a law enforcement officer for that long and that high stress of position and still be married, well, that's a success right then and there. So uh, it's a great conversation. The fact that he retired and then went out and started um, all these efforts to really give back to the line-level guys, I think, speaks volumes about him. And, you know, I know that sometimes when we have these higher, uh, these chiefs on, I know someone out there is not going to agree with my take on this person or they're not going to like their style or ethos or whatever. And it's probably oftentimes people who have worked under them. And I like talking to them, and I like getting the perspective because I am so far removed from working for Fort Worth PD that I have, and and he came from Phoenix before that, and from Phoenix, that I have no um, preconceptions about what happened in those specific uh, departments. You know, he's clearly got pure intent when it comes to his desire to help law enforcement and to better the profession and to do um, and to do good work. And I think it's great for me and for now you to be able to listen to this with that perspective without having to um, filter some of that through our own paradigm of being employed by the agencies. You know, I, I know for a fact that if my sheriff said some of the same things, I would probably be reluctant to have complete buy-in because of other uh, organizational factors at play that have nothing to do with him, but just they color the they color the conversation so uh when when Jeff and I talked, it was such a fantastic conversation. I left it so motivated to go out and do good work and uh and I think you'll get a lot out of it too. We talk about hopeforblue.org. We talk about an app he's developing for line level guys to help protect you from civil litigation and and uh internal affairs. We talk about the difference between uh, leader, manager, supervisor, his career, 20-plus years at uh, at Phoenix, then over to Fort Worth. 
uh, the importance of why he thinks we need to go to an education-based discipline system. It's a great conversation all around, and uh, I'm going to get to it right now. So real quick, you can follow him on Twitter at H4BNow. That's H4, the number 4B now on Twitter. You can follow him on Facebook if you search the Halstead Group, H-A-L-S-T-E-A-D. And, of course, hopefulblue.org is where you can find him as well. Jeff Halstead, welcome to the Squad Room. Thanks for being with us. Oh, you know what? Thanks for the invitation. It's an honor to be with you. I appreciate that. We got connected through a mutual friend, uh, actually a listener of the show, um, who recommended that I reach out to you. And I I found you on LinkedIn because of the work you're doing now. And we'll get to that in a bit. But um, appreciate, uh, you know, one thing, this is a total aside, I'm not intended to bring this up, but thank you to all the listeners who are keep putting me in contact with these great people who uh, are emailing me and telling me, hey, you got to check this person out. You got to see what they're doing, how they're uh, reaching out and responding to law enforcement. Um, so you were, you were one of those contacts. Uh, I got connected up with you through a listener. We chatted a little bit and, uh, and we got you on the show. So you um, have, you're retired at this point, um, but you were at your last moment of, of, of being sworn were the chief of Fort Worth PD in Texas. Yes, sir, I was. That is not a small city, so I'm excited to learn about some of the dynamics of what you had to go through as chief and some of the lessons you learned in that job, but to give everybody some perspective and some knowledge of your history. Can you take us back to um, you know, that rookie year where you did you do your whole career in Fort Worth uh, and, and then kind of walk us through your progression, your short, the short yeah. version of your resume? Yeah, so I uh, started the law enforcement career in 1988 in Phoenix, Arizona. So I started my career in Phoenix, and uh, I was, I, I guess you could say I was frustrated as a police patrol officer because I was working for bosses that didn't, at my opinion, didn't have our best interest at heart, meaning advanced training, uh, tactics, techniques, uh, weapons, all that stuff. And I remember sitting down with a lieutenant who went to my church and he said, listen, if, if you want to make things better, you got to promote. And I didn't really want to promote because I really wanted to guide my career towards tactical assignments. Uh, but I took a promotion test very early in my career and then I got promoted to sergeant in 1993, December of 93. Uh, but I love the job of sergeant so much that I did seven different jobs in nine years. I, from uh, a PIO working directly for the chief to uh, I did like, you know, your crime stoppers types programs, uh, investigations, assignment, community relations. I had a blast as a sergeant and I didn't want to take another test, but I kept getting encouraged to take more tests. So uh, 20 full years with Phoenix PD retiring as a police commander, which is equivalent of like a deputy chief. The I think the most fun I had in that job was right before I retired, I had the opportunity to be the lead planner for Super Bowl 42. And we built the, the state's largest joint operations center, as well as the public information center to run this event. And we started a new traffic control where we brought in all affected agencies and worked them into the system of the incident command system, which was mandated by NIMS. Uh, so we were fully NIMS compliant back with Super Bowl 42. And uh, it was kind of fun because at Super Bowl uh, 49, it went back to Phoenix and the chief called me saying, hey, your plans are still on our books. It was, you know, pretty awesome. Uh, December of 2008, I went and became chief of police for Fort Worth, Texas. I really didn't want to be a chief, but my wife's a native Texan. And I promised her when we got married in 1987 
that someday I would try to get a job in Texas. Well, I figure I had amazing 20 years of marriage. If I wanted another amazing years, I should at least try to get a job. Lo and behold, I got the job. So I went from total outsider to an organization that I knew was drastically behind in uh, advanced uh, training as well as tactics and the organizational component, the policies of the organization needed a lot of updating. So I was thrown into an organization and I was brought in specifically to be a change agent. And, and that will age you very quickly if anyone has that desire <laughs> to go to a new agent agency and change it from top to bottom. You're going to age yourself extremely quickly and have a lot of stress in your life. But that's the basic nutshell. And then in Fort Worth, I think my proudest moment was um, I was honored to be the chief when we had the 100-year celebration of the current badge. It has never changed shape, form, or font, or color, or anything for 100 years. So in 2012, we had the 100-year anniversary of what we call the Centennial Badge. And I got to stand on the same exact steps as the chief did 100 years ago at the same exact time and swear in the officers for another 100 years of wearing the same badge. And that's an honor that I just won't get to see any other time in my life. That's fantastic. So, I mean, Sergeant, after five years, that's, uh, I mean, that's, that's, there's something there. Someone obviously saw something in you. And then you mentioned that you're in Phoenix. And I can, what is it about Phoenix? Because I can think of a good handful of commanders that came from Phoenix that are now chiefs in other agencies. Correct. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, even since you left Phoenix, what was it about your system there, your leadership, the city environment? What was it that makes Phoenix so attractive to have other cities pull their chiefs from the command staff there? You know, I think it was the fact that, you know, for over 30 years, they were a CALEA accredited agency. But they also, you know, just because LAPD in the Western United States is literally the trend leader and Phoenix never really wanted to be an L.A. junior or compete with L.A. Uh, we learned a lot of great lessons from L.A., but we like to institute the lessons, you know, the, the Phoenix way. And in Phoenix PD, I, I can honestly say they have and still have an amazing mentor um, relationship within the organization. So when you have good leadership and then you're identified as someone that can really bring benefit to the organization and the community, and especially the employees, because even though they've had some rough times in the last five years, they still maintain an employee first concept. Uh, if you were a strong leader, then you were directly attached to a mentor who helped you navigate your career so that you could be impactful in many other assignments. And, and I, I was forced out of assignments when I was PIO directly for the chief. Um, you know, I came from motors, so I was in traffic enforcement. And the assistant chief over media relations asked me to put into media relations and I didn't want to do it. I had a dream job, but they saw that I needed some public speaking experience as well as understanding the executive culture so that I could promote again and move forward. So I, I guess that would be a good explanation. So what's the um, so was there a formal mentorship program? Because, like, for example, my agency is trying to implement that now and others have struggled with that. And there's a balance between mentorship which is very important and your proof of that it sounds like versus the the cynical version of that which might be people accuse it of being like the good old boy system you know get, being right. cherry picked for promotion and move forward what was the setup of that mentorship program i'm very interested in these in these situations 
So you, you actually described it perfectly because there is a distinctive fine line between a true mentorship that is based on leadership and leadership growth and a click. And you, you really have to define. And I always tell people, if you're mentoring someone just like you, that's a click. If you're mentoring people with absolutely no resemblance of you and you're enabling them to learn from your skill set and your experiences and they're a totally different leader than you, that's a mentor. So I always try to help my friends that if you want to build a strong mentor program, don't let it be, hey, I'm a former Marine, you're a former Marine, we're both married with 2.2 children, let's be mentors. You're really not going to learn that much. You're just going to have a click, and you guys are going to play basketball off-duty, ride Harleys or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually used a real example for that description. But the other one is, Finding persons that are not like your leadership style, style so that you both can grow from the relationship. That's that's what I drive aggressively in, in the areas where I worked as well as the areas where I was chief. That's interesting. And I, I like the idea that you have to intentionally pick people that are different than you. I, I mean, I'm sure you felt it as a sergeant, and I certainly do too, that my best lessons come from having to connect with people that I can't relate to naturally. You know. You're exactly right. And and I think that makes us better leaders. It, it also makes us more compassionate when we deal with the difficult 80 to 90 percent of the headaches, which are personnel issues. Yes. Well, if we have grown and matured through the experience of so many other leaders that aren't like us, we're going to have compassion and sensitivity where we can deal more effectively with those we lead. So as you... Um... You moved up, and in fact, this came up in a, in a recent episode when we had a sergeant on from Scottsdale PD, actually a good a, a good friend, and um, who was talking about he's a, he's a sergeant too, and the difference between leader versus manager versus supervisor, and how they're distinct responsibilities, and you can do all three at different times or at the same time, or you may not involve, be involved in one of those, or you may misinterpret one for the other, and I'm I'm jumbling it a little bit, but I'm 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 thinking you know leader manager, supervisor, those are three distinct responsibilities. How do you see, and you may disagree with me too, and that's totally fine. Um, how do you see those things playing out as you progress from a sergeant to a lieutenant to a captain to commander to chief? How, what's that, how does that mix change, that recipe change? So uh, I agree with you 100% because what you just described is what I term as a transformational leader. Uh, and, and I always relate it to, I never will forget this incident. And the sergeant who was working for me as a lieutenant is now sheriff of Maricopa County back in Phoenix. But on New Year's Eve, we had three murder suspects with assault weapons run into a neighborhood at 615 in the morning on New Year's Eve. And so when the tactical operation is going and it is in life and death situation, that's leadership. And you are a he was in the mix. He was in the neighborhood. He was going door to door with the TAC team. Uh, then when the situation is resolved and all three are in custody, you turn into a manager where you are now managing the aspects of communication, getting the reports out, making sure that the, you know, the commendations and, and the lessons learned was filed appropriately and policies are followed. And then as this incident progresses, you become a supervisor when you have to sit down those persons, such as two of our officers that deployed unauthorized weapons during this large tactical event. Uh, we had to be a supervisor, sit them down and give them counseling on why that is a liability to the organization. So the incident really taps into the aspects of where you need to be a myriad of personalities 
Uh, and I call that a transformational leader because dependent upon the crowd you're in, the situation you're faced, or the crisis you're going through, you're going to have to rely on those skill sets multiple times at different times of a day. Yeah, it's one of the most fascinating things I think about uh, being in, in a position of leadership like a sergeant um, that you know, I, I look at myself more leader and, and supervisor than manager. You know, I, I'm given a set of resources. Correct. I can't do much with those resources. I can't add personnel to my to my squad and I can't take away personnel and I can't add their training and tactics to that mix. I have to, you know, manage what I've got. So something that's that that I've been thinking a lot about recently is, you know, so there's a lot of that about leadership and of course lead from the front is always that emphasis and that's what a good leader does and but how do you or how did you balance leading from the front versus that mentorship uh aspect of letting others start to step up and make decisions and the more I think about it, I don't know if lead from the front is the right way to describe it, but maybe lead from the middle. You're engaged, you're active, but you're not the number one in the stack going in the door. Right. You, you know, you're third or fourth back. How do you balance, how did you balance that? Balance between leading and being visible, but letting those other people step up. It's probably the most challenging paradigm facing law enforcement today with the headlines we're facing across the U.S. because it doesn't matter if you're a 10-person agency or an 8,000-person agency, when that headline comes, uh, it's extremely challenging. So with that said, um, as chief, I face that a lot because you were talking about, hey, as you progress in your career, sergeant to lieutenant, captain, commander, you know, assistant chief, chief, you know, how does the, the, the myriad of being a leader, manager, and supervisor? Well, when, when you're chief, you're an administrator. Uh, there is, if any chief says otherwise, then I will show you a budget that's failing or policies that are outdated. When you're a chief, you're an administrator. Physically dropping your ego and your rank, because in Fort Worth, I could do anything I wanted at any time I wanted or create any policy I wanted. Uh, it was a very powerful position, but I would be ignorant if I did that, and, and, and I would be really foolish if I did that. So when I was faced with an administrative decision, my management side I would require my staff, regardless of rank, if you see us making a decision or making a consideration that doesn't benefit our mission, pull me aside so I can meet with those most affected by that decision and I can hear their defense of why we need to not do it. And and, and literally, I made myself get out of the office and go into briefings, roll calls, SWAT debriefs. So I could hear when you're considering a 15% cut in the ammunition budget for your department, you know, it's only 280,000 bucks. It may not be a lot. Now you're going to have no advanced sniper training for the next year. That's a big deal. And that's a giant liability. If I didn't get out of the office and listen to those troops who do the tough jobs at two o'clock in the morning when I'm sleeping, I'm not going to know as a administrator what's best to lead the organization. And that's tough because the ego of chief is you don't need to listen to anybody and you really don't need to consider anybody else's thoughts or feelings. But in essence, you have to because you really want to make sure the decisions impact those who are completing your mission. And that's absolutely critical. And, and I was very fortunate that for six years straight, crime went down consistently with for six years straight. And we added not one human being to the police department. We implemented technology. I let the people doing the job become more efficient in the way they wanted to do the jobs. And I let captains run their precincts and, and captains run their divisions. And I didn't second guess them unless I could see a better way to do it. 
So I let rank fall many, many times throughout a work week so we could just have leadership discussions on how to make the organization better. So when you came in, you know, like you said, you came in as an outsider. You came in as a, as a change agent. Um, you know, cops, we survive on cynicism. It's what gets us through the traffic stop. It's what gets us through a shift, you know. Um, but it's also corrosive. But I can't imagine uh, you were uh, greeted with unanimous applause. There must have been some concern about the outsider who's coming in to change things. Cops hate change. People in general hate change. Yeah. How did you bridge that and build some trust? So, uh, and this is a, a good model. I try to help my friends who get chief's job from other agencies. I, I always tell them, you're going to have this knee-jerk response that you want to make some changes super, super quick. And I always tell them, go 100 days. And I actually, when I went to Fort Worth, December 8th of 2008, um, I made a public statement my very first day that I would make no administrative or organizational changes for 100 days. And then I vowed to the mayor and city manager, I was going to work 100 days straight so I can get in every patrol division, each patrol sector, briefings, traffic, SWAT, gangs, gang unit. I wanted to really get a feel for what their culture is like and what's really sensitive to their policing culture because they had a great community-supported policing model. And I wanted to make sure I can keep all the great things and improve the good things to make them great. So I worked 100 days straight, and then I developed a five-year strategic plan with all of that input. But I didn't write the plan. I let the employees and the supervisors of sergeants and lieutenants write the plan. And that plan proved to be probably one of the most ingenious things that they did, and I just let them do it. Because I signed off on it. I wanted to hear where they wanted to take the agency for the next five years. And we actually hit 93% of all the items we set forth in our plan. Because it wasn't the chief running his plan down their throat. It was them finally having a voice. Now, I had some people that didn't like me. Um, I still have one pending lawsuit because I aggressively held every human being accountable. From my chief of staff all the way to a brand new recruit. Everybody got held to the same accountability platform. Um, so you're going to have people that can't stand you and will resist you and will say extremely negative and mean things about you and your character. Your job is to take them and move on. Your job is not to get into rank pitted battles within the organization. And, and that, that sometimes can be tough when you see the personal comments, especially in social media. Good Lord, every, everything's public now, mm -hmm. but you really, really have to let it slide off your back. And remember, it's the mission and the employees that is what your focus is. Do you have any personal tools or tricks or um, routines that you use to, you know, either just to address the day-to-day -day work and the stress of that work or to, to, to put aside those, those negative things like that? I mean, some people journal, some people meditate, some people have a focus on physical exercise. Um, some people use the church. What, what, what were the things that you used to keep yourself centered? So I, uh, I made it a point that uh, I, I maintained an aggressive physical fitness regimen. Um, I was I had a tactical background in, in Phoenix. I didn't want to let that go. So I ran with every recruit class. Uh, I actually did their graduation run, and I ran them as hard as I possibly could, making many of them probably not like me when they graduated. But I did everything physical before 7 a.m. Uh, and then I wanted to make sure that once I got ready for work, I was in work focus. 
And then I have to balance work with my personal life because I've been married for almost 30 years and it's the greatest, greatest partnership I could have ever imagined. So I would literally turn my phone off and eliminate all IT on date night. And I would tell my staff, my chief of staff or the assistant chief covering the, for the weekend, I'm IT free the whole day of Saturday, meaning you're not going to get me. So do your job, hold your rank and run whatever happens. Uh, I will find out in the next 12 to 14 hours what really happened, and then I will come to the hospital if needed. Or, But you guys do your job. Brief the city manager. Make the notifications. Talk to elected officials. I'm not going to have my phone on for 12 hours because I want to go out to dinner with my wife and enjoy a beautiful day. Uh, and I had to bring that balance back in life. So I, Because you will work 24-7 as chief, especially when there's a crisis. And I had many, many of those my first three years. Yeah, it- you know, it's interesting to to hear that perspective, uh, and I think it's something that anybody, a line level guy, can learn from too. Uh, not just someone in chief's position, but the, the the rookie who's wanting to work the extra OT and wants to be at the at the station twenty four seven because just everything's brand new and exciting, and it's just golly gee, it's fun to go drive a police car around, you know. Yeah. But if you're married or if you're in some sort of a relationship, that date night or that time away is really important, and especially with how pervasive our phones are now with instant information to everything and um i think that's one of the 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 key relationship issues is just being able to put that aside you know yeah it is and and i think in our profession um god we live at such an aggressive mindset because we have to survive in many of the incidents we face and we don't know what we're facing on many calls but you know when you're out to dinner with your spouse and you want to really really reconnect and touch then lock your smartphones in your glove box and go have a nice one hour dinner and enjoy your movie without trying to sneak a text to a friend because you're just taking away from that personal investment that's going to bring balance to your life and happiness to yourself. And you really, cops are tough because you can't tell them what to do, but you have to have that balance of both physical wellness, spiritual as well. I prayed a significant amount, as did my wife, but really reconnecting with those who are most special to you. So I always made sure we never had smartphones at dinner. I always made sure that we had IT-free conversations many times so we could just listen and look at one another. And that was so important because it made me human again, and I could be a better decision maker at work. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I want to go back to leadership a little bit and then touch on your fitness, the fitness regimen you mentioned. But um, the, the the leadership, did you? is there any – books, any specific people you followed, anything you used as your template, or was it just something that you were able to develop through your mentorship program at work? And I'm asking because I want to be able to tease out things that we can directly point listeners to if they are able to use these things, or things that you've found since you retired that you think are just fantastic examples of, of, of how to do it. Hey, I, I preach this constantly. Um, I was fortunate in 1998, um, then in Phoenix, Chief Harold Hurt picked me as one of eight um, train the trainers for a book called Enlightened Leadership by Ed Oakley and Doug Krug. Uh, and, and you can ask my wife, you can ask my two sons, you can ask the people that I worked around or the people I led later in my career. That book absolutely changed my leadership style my managerial capacity, as well as my compassion for so many that we are fortunate to lead with. So that that book is phenomenal. The book teaches you uh, to be an enlightened leader, meaning 
it's the soft issues of leadership, the personnel issues, the sensitive feelings that employees will have, uh, the things they're not saying that you need to hear. Those issues will make you a stronger and deeper compassionate leader. And unless you know how to harness them or get them out of others that you're leading with, uh, you're really not going to be impactful in their lives. So that, that book changed my life. I got to teach enlightened leadership to every employee in the Phoenix Police Department. That's 4,400 employees over the course of the next three years. So from 99 to 2002, uh, my signature is on every single one of their attendance. We did 30 to 60 at a block, uh, but the chief wanted every human in that organization taught on that. Uh, and then when I, I, I started living those and it became part of my character, when I went to Fort Worth, I implemented that as well. And not not as formally as Phoenix did, because we didn't have funds. We had budget cuts all six years straight. But I made sure that I went out of my way to teach them the philosophies of that book. And I gave many copies to especially the first line supervisors, which is without a doubt the make or break rank of any organization in policing. That, that first round supervisor will make they, they will make your agency amazing or they're going to bring it down uh, with absolutely a uh, fiery crash. You just need to understand how powerful that rank is and embrace them into your leadership circle. Yeah, we sergeants like to think we run the organization, don't we? <laughs> you, you know, you, I always tell people uh, all these personnel issues that were huge headaches in Fort Worth, you can relate it back to a, a sergeant because and one of them was just a simple policy issue on appearance. And because the appearance was never addressed or adhered to, this employee started doing aggressive things while on duty. And we ended up arresting him for selling marijuana to prostitutes out of a marked patrol car. And it all went back to no one held him accountable to our tattoo policy or our hair and grooming standards uh -huh. because they were intimidated by him because he was a large man and he was scary looking. But all because of that, he decided he can get away with anything and – it's just sick how that, that rolls sometimes. It's interesting you bring that up. I have this theory, and I'm working on it, and this is actually this will be the first time I ever talk about it in any sort of public uh, forum, which is pretty public. Um, but it's the idea of broken windows leadership. You know, everyone's familiar with broken windows policing and that you got to handle the small things because the small things become big things. But leadership's the same way. And it's not to be – it's not to hold someone to task for every little thing as in micromanaging, but – you got to set that standard and it's not what you preach. It's what you allow, you know, uh, right. that, that is the, that is, uh, that's what I certainly, I have something I've learned is, um, it doesn't matter what you preach and what you talk about in briefing. It's how you, it's what you allow people to get away with, uh, right. or how much you allow them to push that envelope past what the norm is and past what everyone else is allowed to do. So, yep. um, that's a, sounds like a great book. I'll have to, uh, I have oh, to look into it. It's a phenomenal book. In fact, I got more out of it in my personal life oh, than wow. my professional life. I mean, it, it made me a really, really conscientious leader and supervisor That's but, fantastic. Uh, in my personal life. Just the amazing communication techniques they have, both chapters, you know, six, seven, eight. They're just amazing. And it's an easy read. Mm -hmm. You know, it's probably less than three quarters of an inch thick. But what a powerful book. I'll check it out. I remember when I got promoted, you know, and and. and I got all sorts of people pulling me aside to give me advice. And the advice I always got was just take care of your people. Yeah. But they didn't expand on that. It was just yeah. one sentence, take care of your people. Well, what, what does that mean? You know, that can mean so many different things. Right. Um, and I think that going back to what we were just talking about with, you know, this leadership issue and broken windows leadership, it's you take care of them by making sure that they stay within the parameters of the job 
And that's actually, you're doing, you're doing them a huge favor when you do that. And then yeah. you got to go out and of course, make sure you pay attention to those little things. Like it sounds like this book covers of the, it does. Their, their personal ethos and the belief and why they're coming to work and realizing that what they're doing is really important. I think that's a big issue is sergeants can, we have the ability to point out to a, a line officer how, what great work they just did on something, you know, it's a routine call or they got a domestic suspect in the back of the car, but you know, pointing out the bigger picture to that, you got them away from the abuse, at least, even just for the night, you know, she, yeah. she yeah. might, she might piss backward in court, but for one night, she's not going to get beat or, you know, the, the misdemeanor drunk driving offense. Well, that that's a lot of paperwork and it's a lot of time. And yeah, maybe it's not the big felony arrest that you're out there gunning for as a rookie, but you probably just, you might've just saved someone from getting plowed through in a red light, you know? Right. So how, how you can't quantify that in terms of the impact you're having on your community. And right. it's a great opportunity to be able to sit down with these guys and go, no, look at it from my perspective. You just say, you, you probably just saved somebody's life, you know? Right. And, and so that's, that's been a lot of fun for me as well. Um, you know, there's a lot of, div- not division, but there's so much space between the line level officer and the chief. You know, I mean, there's so many ranks. Each rank has their own paradigm through which they function. Sometimes they conflict. Hopefully they're all in alignment. But there's just a natural tendency to to be distant. You know, and it's just the nature of the job, nature of a paramilitary organization. You know, my wife goes to work and she works at a, like a, you know, high tech company where everyone's got, um, uh, uh, cubicles and the, you know, the, the CEO is a cubicle over and it's this big open environment and they're all, you know, they all have titles, but they don't really mean anything. And everybody gets to participate in this thing. And we, we don't have that opportunity for a reason, you know, cause we're paramilitary and we need to be, but it creates a lot of space. I thought it'd be interesting to ask you, what do you think a, what do you want a, if, as a chief, if you put your chief hat on, what do you want the line level officers to know about what it's like to be the chief or what you see the line levers, line level guys as from the chief's perspective? You know, we did something, uh, probably my second year as chief, I could see there was a growing disconnect, uh, between my office and very young officers, uh, less than three years. So I brought in, no one really knew this, but, uh, it's not a big secret. I brought in the head of personnel, uh, a, a young lady, and I told her, I said, hey, Christy, here's the deal. Um, the next time we have an injured officer who returns to work, uh, instead of having them you know, sitting on their sector desk answering phones, send them up to my office, and I want them to work with me while they're rehabbing and getting back to being healthy. Uh, so most of them are in plain clothes, and I would literally have some of them drive me around to meetings. And it was just I wanted to get to know them. I wanted them to see how freaking busy I was so that they can't say, Oh, he's probably, you know, left early play golf. No, I definitely (laughs) didn't do that. And then just having about two or three of those come up for a week and be my shadow and see the volume of crap I had to deal with. I'm telling you, this new generation has the ability to talk with thousands of people in a day in their new social media formats. And two or three of those, and I became a new king for a lot of these young officers because, God, this guy works all the time and he's going here and going there. And he defended us at this public meeting. And, and that really ended up being a great benefit to us. But I always say, you know, the, the larger the organization, the wider the disconnect. It's just the mere nature of this giant organizational pyramid you have built. But pull yourself out. And if you can't pull yourself out of the office, 
then bring up some volunteers to so you can get to know them just for a day. And and it really let's let's take Chicago PD, absolutely fractured organization. I've been trying to help some of their leaders you know, through email and through tech advances. They are broken. But even if the superintendent just brought up um, an officer for two hours during their probationary year, and he could do you know two a week or whatever, he would start having amazing connections at different levels. A probationary sergeant come up for a couple hours and have a coffee and just talk. Not only would they see this man is real human, and but he has an amazingly difficult job. But I think connections would be made, and people would start having conversations that, hey, our bosses aren't as big as jerks as we thought. Here's one that is your listeners, uh, and I hope somebody can listen and maybe talk to me in more detail. Um, What's really, really broken in policing, and I'm waiting for the time to write a book about this, our discipline system is the worst process I have ever seen in any public or private sector. And and I'm just going to give you a quick shade of why it's so bad. There's not one study, not one research group, not one uh, uh, professor or researchers that can prove that taking pay out of an officer's check is beneficial to learning and improving professionalism. But what do we do when we have an extremely serious violation of policy, but it doesn't meet termination? We take them 40, you know, 40 hours, no pay, two weeks, no pay. And what does that create? A pissed off, now broke employee who's coming back to work with an edge. And I think we in policing should eliminate every punitive discipline process and model. And we should implement an education-based model that goes much further than L.A. counties, because I implemented a similar one in Fort Worth, but eliminate every capacity to take money out of their check because they got to provide for their families. And the more serious the violation, just simply put a color-coded discipline notice in their file. And what it means is, hey, you've got a supervisor can sit down. So your squad, you could sit down as a sergeant and you see Officer Thompson has two yellow violations in the last year. And you're like, hey, listen, these are very minor. But if you have another one of these minor ones, I'm going to give you an orange. And if you advance to red, the chief has the capacity to fire you immediately. There's no loss in pay, but there are distinctive communication models that this color means you're getting close to losing your career. So let's invest training. Let's advance a new relationship. Let's look at a new assignment because we don't want you to start stacking these deeper colors into your file. And then wash them out when there has been a time period where there's been great behavior. So. He's got a couple of yellows in there for a couple of at-fault accidents, or he called some woman a bad name on a traffic stop. All right, it's been three years. He's been a stellar employee. Throw him out of his file. He starts fresh. You'll see an employee gets investment from management and gets leadership training and skills, but he also is a less of a liability out on the street. So hopefully we can get rid of this paid time off crap and, and ruin in their paychecks to think they're going to learn because they don't learn. They just come back with an edge and a chip. It's a very f- excellent point that the challenge in anything like that is is uh, getting the buy-in at all levels to make it consistent. Exactly. Uh, um, did you find that as a challenge, or were you able to find a way to? <laughs> because, like, I mean, my ex, and this is this is something that I beat my head against the wall with with uh, government work and public service. But my expectation of my group 
is different than my partner squad, my partner sergeant, yes. you know, on, on night shift. And it's not a not necessarily a bad or good thing, but again, it's what you allow, uh, not what you preach. And we can all we all know policy. We all we all understand policy, but if you hold your if you hold everybody and yourself to a high expectation, but then squad Z uh, uh, is you know kind of off on their own program, and and he the sergeant wants to be a nice guy, and he doesn't want to offend people, and he he wants to be liked, so he's not implementing some discipline issues. I mean that that that's where it becomes real messy. How did you resolve that? So. Uh where we're not learning in policing is like April 15th of 2010. I remember the day immensely because we instituted the new advanced learning discipline matrix. And what we did was we took the last five years in internal affairs, every possible violation that was committed by every rank of every employee, and we laid them on a grid system. And we had agreed upon discipline that would be administered because of the violation, but also the advanced learning that management would follow up on so that we don't have repeat situations. But because it was policy, there was sergeants and lieutenants who said, ah, screw the chief's policy. Uh, And then they had little pet projects. So you love Officer Thompson, but Officer Smith's a jackass. So boy, the day Officer Smith gets a complaint on traffic stop, I'm going to ream him or her. But boy, if Officer Thompson, my buddy, I'll always take care of them and make it go away. I always try to educate chiefs. The only way we're going to fix this is to bring a no, a non-punitive learning module to address misconduct and put it in an employment contract. That way, if the supervisor violates the contract, that's serious. That's extremely serious. And then every employee has rights within that contract. So they know a supervisor can't target them as a project for discipline. They have to adhere to the contract. But you can't bring your current discipline process in your policy section, which may be 14 pages, and put it in a contract. You have to simplify it and make it easy to understand and bring community leaders and police activists in the system so that it's all agreed upon. Because a lot of our activists and citizens think when we give somebody um, 80 hours you know, off with no pay, they literally think they get a free paycheck and get to sit at home on their couch. Even though we say they are not receiving pay for the next two weeks, they think, oh, no way. They're still getting paid. They'll trade in vacation time or comp time. And some do in some agencies. So I think we need to simplify it, make it a two-page deal where everybody understands if you lie, you're going to get fired. If you intentionally violate someone's civil rights, you're going to get fired. If you commit a felony act on or off duty, you're going to get fired. Okay, so you just make three termination categories and the rest are addressed through a documentation type discipline where no pay is taken away, but we invest advanced training and learning so they become a better employee. And I think once it's in a contract, you're going to have buy-in from all levels. And nobody can kind of screw with the policy and customize it to fit midnight shift in this one part of the city because, hey, we're road warriors and we deserve more flexibility. We just got to get out of that mindset. It's hurting us as a profession. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And it sounds like moving to somewhere where the it's not as um, – <clears throat> moving to a model where it's not as uh, 
stigmatized as losing exactly. pay or, or, or being fired where it's more of an education thing. You know, we all, we all go to classes. It's, you know, it's like, I mean, right. we, we all go to quarterly training and, and we're all going to updates. It's, I think we can all understand the value of classes, even if we're necessarily uh, mandated to go, but, uh, all you know, we have surgeons in America that, that have had dozens of patients die on their table and they're not getting fired. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> But they have to learn what happened. There is liability attached with their decisions, but they have to go to advanced learning and other surgical tactics and techniques so that they can lessen the possibility of that occurring again. And I think we have to honor that as a profession. If we want to be a profession, then we're going to have to institute the fact that our employees make errors. If there's no mental intent to commit a crime, commit a felony, violate your civil rights or to steal, cheat or lie, then you are trainable and learnable as a valuable commodity. And we got we to gotta really accept that. Well, I like that a lot. I mean, we'll write a note right here just to make sure that we get that one. <laughs> <clears throat> so uh, you, you did your time in Fort Worth. What was – you retired. What was the decision or what, what, what time did you realize it was time, time to move on and try something new? Um, I did not want to leave. I just finished my five-year strategic plan, so it took us six to nine months to implement it. We ran it for five full years, and then I contracted with the Police Executive Research Forum, PERF. I paid them to come and do an independent audit of how good was the plan, and the plan ended up being well over 93% successful. Wow. And then I was a little bit, I was going on, this was my second mayor, and it was going to be my third city manager, and I was getting tired. Six years, I never got a dime of a pay raise, and my budget was cut six years straight, and I got really tired of having to do more with less and not being compensated fairly. Uh, Per capita, I was the lowest paid major city chief in the U.S., and my request to at least to have an honorable pay scale that was equivalent to other major city chiefs was denied 10 times uh, by three different assistant city managers. So I got frustrated was the first part, but because there were so many internal conflicts going on, uh, a lot of racial issues, and when you're chief, you become the target of everything. Even though they're mad at their lieutenant, the grievance or the civil rights case is coming against you, even though the lieutenant screwed up. And I just thought to myself, well, no one's compensated me fairly for what I'm doing. No one's giving me any success recognition for the five-year strategic plan. I don't want to implement another five-year plan, kill myself making it successful, and have another six years of not getting any compensation for it. So I just talked to my wife and said, you know what? I made Fort Worth very successful in their camera program And I think I want to help Taser implement this type of program in many other agencies, especially small and mid-sized agencies. And then we agreed, yep, let's just leave on the high note. So we had the Super Bowl win. Perf came in and audited. I just did not want to go through another, you know, three to five years. Even though I, I, I wasn't ready to quit per se, it enabled me to really look at some pet projects that I really wanted to get done. One was the nonprofit. The other one was a free app for police officers that is done next week and will be in iTunes and Google play in late May of this year. Uh, it will be the safest and most effective way for any officer in the United States to communicate. And it's impossible to figure out what you're saying or who said it. Uh, so I've, I've been working on that for two years and it's almost done and I self funded it. So I'm not obligated to anybody to, 
to make it do a certain thing that they want to do. I just took care of cops. So like an encrypted text messaging system? or So I took the benefits of, I personally, and I can prove this, social media is killing this country because let's say you wanted to post on Facebook something you experienced during your shift that you saw and you think is wrong, and you posted it, and you posted your attitude, your feeling, or opinion. But your local news station thought it was offensive by some word you used or you used the word thug, and now they make it a story, and now you get fired. And all you were doing was posting a feeling, thought, or opinion. Um, Very professionally worded, but they're still targeting us. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I took the social benefits of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat, and I took the services we love as people, but I made the services deliverable in three levels of encryption for officers to use for free all across the United States. Wow. Are you able to share the name of this yet, or are you waiting to release it? Uh, it's going to be called Blue. That's it. Just Blue. Um, blue stands for Backing Law Enforcement Unites Everyone. Uh, what this platform does is we want to build a piece of technology that supports cops. Because I know when we support law enforcement, we have a safer city, a better community, and really a, an unbelievable relationship that that officer needs to be successful. Mm-hmm. we got to stop this fractioning and division of support within America for the American law enforcement officer. And this app is going to give us the platform because now you could you can build unlimited encrypted networks on this free app. You can do one-touch communication to every person you supervise and share with them the most sensitive information you want to share, and none of that will go public. And nobody can find it. Your chief can't find it, a reporter can't find it, an attorney can't find it, because I've encrypted your identity as well. Wow, that's that's a fascinating concept. I look forward to downloading that uh, and Yeah, I and learned it from it. doing organized crime investigations. And just so everybody knows, they always say to me, yeah, but what if the bad guys get it? The bad guys have had this for over a decade in the dark web because I used to <laughs> investigate them when I had the States Fusion Center in Phoenix. I did the counterterrorism unit. They've been doing this for years, but we need the ability to share extremely private and sensitive matters mm-hmm. that are already public records. So you could literally send out uh, 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 the name and booking photo of a person wanted for three violent child molestations in your, in, in your beat, mm-hmm. and you can send it through the app. And it's not like email where a reporter can get your email. Mm -hmm. It's impossible for them to get this communication. And then the minute, what's beautiful is the minute that's done and that person's in custody, when you swipe and delete that network, it reaches out to everyone's phone and pulls your communication back. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's I could see that immediately being helpful. We uh, just last week were looking for someone and uh, we're not issued smartphones. uh, The sergeants are, I guess, but. Line level guys aren't, and we're looking for somebody, and we're not. None of, not all of us are familiar with who this person is. And a uh, enterprising deputy at the station sent the photo and name and address to everybody's personal cell phones. Yeah, and it's come up before, and it came up during this. It's like it's it's incredibly useful, and it it's is. it's very great to have. But that can potentially make your cell phone discoverable. Right. And, so yeah. what we did on the app was, and it took me many many years, and. It's extremely expensive to finalize the programming and the technology. Um, You cannot download the app on a governmental device because it is inherently a public records uh, vehicle. So Mm -hmm. it has to be a personally owned phone. Mm -hmm. But the beauty is 
so when you get the app for free, no human being can find you. I can't even find you. You simply send encrypted text messages to different people you want to bring into your worlds, and you start building the networks as you see fit. You may want to build a sergeant's network where you communicate advanced training or life-saving techniques or whatever. Or you can have friends and family where you talk about very personal matters. And since it's on your personal device, if a reporter or an attorney came to me as owner of the app and said, hey, I want all of you know this sergeant's communication, and I'll be like, that sergeant doesn't exist. He, he doesn't have the app because your identity is encrypted. I don't even know you have it, and I don't want to know you have it. I just want to give you a vehicle that you can share extremely protected, already existing public record. But the media has no right to that information at that time. But you got to do your job efficiently and effectively, and we want to give it to you for free. Oh wow, that sounds like a sounds like a really great idea. So I the other wait. taking too long, but it's getting there. Yeah, and we'll make sure that people, st- our listeners, stay uh, posted on when it's available. So the other thing you mentioned is you're a nonprofit, HopeForBlue.org. Yes. Um. You've got all these other things going on. You've got your consulting business. You mentioned that you're working with Taser and training there. Uh, you've got this app that I didn't even know about until we were just now. Um, Hope for Blue. There's something else you're taking on, but but tell people about it and what your mission is with that. Because I think that, that's really why we got connected in the first place was right. through uh, one of the connections at Taser who uh, said, uh, you got to see what he's really out there and his mission for law enforcement is. So tell us about Hope for Blue. Well, um very, very special program. I, I can say that um, starting, growing, and making a nonprofit extremely visible to the people they need to serve is 10 times tougher than planning a Super Bowl. So wow. <laughs> I'll, never, I'll never do it again, but <laughs> it's very, very worthwhile. So uh, the four and hope for blue. So it's number four, hope for blue. The four means it's just four missions we have. And these missions could have benefited me throughout my career. Uh, but the, the most important mission that we have that I think there's a giant gap in law enforcement is uh, when you're critically injured on duty and you are now forced to medically retire, you really, as a re- medically retired police officer, I don't think you need to worry about, will my state industrial compensation cover me 100% for the rest of my life? Uh, I found from personal experience that that is not the case. I had three officers in Fort Worth. One of them committed suicide. And then I had a police academy friend, mentor, amazing beat cop. He got critically injured and was facing monumental medical procedures, and he committed suicide with his duty weapon. And I did his honor guard for his services. Mm -hmm. The gap was when you're critically injured, you're forced to medically retire. From that date of medical retirement for the rest of your life, there's no organization to help you offset the unfunded expenses that occur with you living or getting a new piece of technology or innovative rehabilitation because the state industrial compensation, regardless of which state you live in, are average at best, and there are giant gaps in their coverage. Mm -hmm. We want to fill the funding of the gap. And so what happens is it costs only $2 a month to be a member of Hope for Blue for a police officer. That $2 guarantees you if you are ever critically injured on duty and you medically retire, then for the rest of your life, our board will raise money for you so that when you come to us saying, hey, this new innovative wheelchair is $3,500 and state industrial compensation only covers half of it, we'll pay the other half. So it's the, we don't call it, we don't use the I word, 
insurance because it's not insurance. We call these member benefits so that we're not regulated by the insurance industry because we want to serve cops and not be restrictive. The reason your state industrial compensations are extremely restrictive is they're governed and regulated by different segments of industry. We don't want to do that. So that's the most important mission is giving you protection if you're critically injured for the rest of your life once you medically retire. The second benefit, we also, oh, in that benefit, we also cover line of duty deaths, but so do so many other people. We just let our members know if you're ever critically injured and or killed, that's when all your coverage kicks in. We replace every canine in America killed in the line of duty. Uh, the asterisk on that is they can't die from heat-related injuries because they were accidentally left in their vehicle, because sometimes that leads to an administrative or a criminal investigation. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be part of that liability attachment. So if they're shot in the line of duty and killed, like we had one in uh, Vegas here last year, uh, we pay for the dog immediately. We don't want the budget cycle to take 18 months to get a new dog there because that dog saves officers' lives. So we'll buy the dog in 30 days and just give it to the agency. Agency's got to train it, but we give them the funds that mm-hmm. they can buy whatever dog they want. Usually the Belgian Malinois is what they use. And then the other two, and these are the criticisms of our profession, and I actually took it from very vocal people who hate law enforcement. Um, we don't train our officers enough in the tactics or the topics they need to survive and we don't give them the right equipment or new innovative technology to make them more efficient or safer in their deployment. So missions three and four are we give free training to our members. So the only caveat is your agency has to have 20% membership. So like with Phoenix, there are 3,000 members. If 600 members are on Hope for Blue, then I ask the union president, what training does your members want? Or I do a survey on like a survey monkey website and that they say, hey, we want close quarter combat or handgun training. Then I hire the contractors. They give me the facility and I put on the training for free and it's free for you as a Hope for Blue member. Um, And then the other one is getting free equipment and technology. The only equipment we do not buy are guns, ammunition and vehicles only because of the secondary liability that's attached with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have purchased Taser X2 weapons. Uh, for uh, many officers in very, very small departments who have no taser devices. So we donate those weapons directly to the city council or the chief of police. All they have to do is sign a a release of liability form. It's a standard one-page form. But those four missions, I think, is what's missing in citizens getting behind officers. So what has advanced in the last 11 months since we kicked this off, really it's almost been a year. March 30th, it'll be a year was we've now amended the policy so that any citizen can sponsor any officer. So if your parents are still alive and one of them wants to sponsor you, they literally sign up for $2 a month. And the reason I have to have the $2 a month instead of $24 per year is because I have to prove to the board in every 30-day cycle who is a member in case they're T-boned by a drunk and they get a broken neck. I got to prove to them, and I don't want that gap that, oh, well, you know, Uncle Ben never signed, you know, Tom back up to be a member again, so his benefits expired. Mm-hmm. I just don't want that to happen. So that's why we do the two bucks a month. Uh, and, and it's very, very easy to do. But we allow any citizen to sponsor any officer. In the miscellaneous section, they put in there a tribute or honor donation, and they just put the name and agency. They're covered in all aspects of benefits. And it's only two bucks a month. And now we're really advancing because a mega church in San Antonio 
this is Oak Hills Baptist Church, which was uh, one of the starting churches for Max Licato. He's a Christian author. And the past senior pastor's name is Randy Frazee. Randy heard about me. I flew out there to meet with him. He has 15,000 members in his church. He wants to adopt the entire San Antonio Police Department. Wow. So all 4,000-plus officers were going to get adopted in one weekend in July. So every single human on that department is going to be adopted by a church member. And if the officer wants to make a connection, that's awesome. If the officer doesn't want any connection whatsoever, that's still awesome because they're covered by a member of one of their local churches. I think that's going to be our success platform moving forward. Like your buddy in Scottsdale, this is kind of cool. His chief, Alan Rodbell, and his president of their union I'm working with, uh, the entire company of Taser wants to adopt every employee of Scottsdale PD. And we're in the process of getting that done. So your friend who's a sergeant is going to be sponsored by an employee of Taser. They just want to do everything they can so that they get benefits. Should they ever get critically injured or need equipment, then I can step up and rally the board and get them some good stuff. What a beautiful idea. (laughs) Hey, well, thanks. It's just so hard. (laughs) Cops, we are the most suspicious people in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I tell cops it's only two bucks a month. I get some dirty looks because they're like, what's really, what does it really do? Yeah. Or, you know, is it $2 for each benefit or they just, I no, no, it's seven cents a day and I'll cover you if you're critically injured for the rest of your life. My board wants to work and serve cops, but they just have to be a member per se. And that's the lowest rate we could come to that made sense to us. Also in Hope for Blue, no human being gets a salary. We don't have any paid people that serve in this capacity. Uh, and unfortunately, it is a one-person nonprofit, which is yours truly. So Saturday, Sunday, and Mondays, I usually do the admin work for Hope for Blue, make sure the membership roster is current, communicate with the board of directors, and try to evaluate what kind of training or what kind of needs I'll have for funding uh, to meet the training goals we have. But we're still small. I think we're only serving less than 300 cops across the U.S., but we've done very little aggressive outreach other than social media. When these church adoptions and mega church adoptions hit, then we're probably going to get a lot of national media coverage, which will overwhelm us and we'll eventually have to hire some employees. But in our bylaws with the IRS, because we are a 501c3, uh, 80% of all donations has to go directly to the missions. Mm -hmm. So we cannot spend more than 20% on administrative or overhead and or expenses. So we won't be like some military support groups where – 60, 70, 80% goes to the CEO and the people right. and very little goes to the missions. We put a ton to the mission. It's a, and I love the idea that you can be sponsored, you know, and that this maybe necessarily isn't even somebody you will ever meet. Um, but that's exactly. someone like we were talking earlier about that, uh, contact with the public and, and that support for law enforcement is going to improve relations across the board. But this is a, such a nice way for someone to, um, just, you know, even anonymously just reach out and, and acknowledge the efforts. And exactly. Right. Yeah. And it's so cool because, you know, you, you could have an officer come to your house for, you know, somebody stole your lawnmower, but this officer was so professional, so caring, so genuine. Now you can actually get online in two minutes and change that officer's life forever mm-hmm. for two bucks. Yeah. And that officer may not know, but we do try to reach out to the officers that get sponsored and let them know. Hey, you know, Mrs. Thompson at this email, excuse me, at this email address sponsored you in Hope for Blue. And we give them a packet, some lapel pins and stickers and say, all we are, all we are about is bridging a solid component of unity 
to law enforcement um, and making the profession more professional equipment, training, and services that are brought forth by the private sector. That's just what we want. Budgets are cut across the U.S. That cannot be an excuse to not train our people effectively. So we got to deliver an increased training platform in the next five years. Want to before we get to how people can find out more about Hope for Blue and where to reach you, um, you you do go out and you talk to agencies all around the country and um, in in all your different capacities. Um, but I'm curious what you want, like the rookie officer who's coming into a profession that's that's very conflicted right now under a lot of attention. A lot of it negative. Um, what what do you want them to know, either about the job or their mission, or what what value they're bringing to their country? A couple of things are so important, and I spend a lot of time speaking about this to to the young officers who are considering the career or are early engagers in the career, and they're thinking this ain't right for me. We have just there's no simple way to put it. We have been targeted by the media for almost a decade and social media has now made it easier than ever for media to continue the targeting of law enforcement. And the reason we are targeted is because we raise a lot of money in advertising and sales for the media outlets that target us. So the machine and the targeting is benefiting and raising profits for the media. So they're not going to stop. We have to be more creative and how we communicate and showcase our profession. But we also have to be more supportive inherently across the U.S. Eighty-five percent of every human being in America loves law enforcement and supports them. But there's a very loud and angry two to three percent that's getting all the attention. And we can't let that stray. And I remind young officers that to remember this adage, and I push this out on everything I can all the social media websites, all the training, even Taser sponsors me for it. Um, We are the greatest at completing an unpredictable mission. Every day when that officer goes 10-8, there's no other profession in the world, minus the military and global conflict, where they have no idea what they're going to face that day. And we're the greatest at completing that unpredictable mission. There's no other human being that can criticize the manner in which we complete our duties day in and day out. And yes, there are negative police stories. It is 0.0002% of really everything we encompass as a profession. Yet it receives all the attention of everybody's ideology of what policing is really all about. So I would stress those two things. One, the media will continue to target you. So let's get smarter in how we communicate, which is why I built the app. Let's build our own infrastructure of how we want to communicate immediately and effectively to our brothers and sisters in the profession because we can't do it on social media. We're targeted and criticized the day we do it. And then remember, the people you come into contact with absolutely love and adore you. But there's a 5 to 10% group that, yeah, they can't stand you because you're going to impede their criminality and the way that they make money in their criminal lifestyle and be trained and be equipped to deal with that threat effectively and survive the headline. Um, that would be my push. Fantastic. So, uh, Jeff, I appreciate all your time, some fantastic topics. And I really liked your insight on, uh, on a lot of different topics here. I mean, manager, leader, supervisor, and, um, your commitment to the profession is really something that 
that um, as someone who's currently, I mean, you're still in it, but I mean, you're yeah. as someone who's still strapping a gun belt and a vest on every day. I thank you for, for still being with us in the fight to do the people's work and to protect, you know, the rights of all of the citizens, all the, all the beautiful work that gets done every day. Yeah. It gets done because of people uh, in leadership positions like yourself who see it that way. And, oh, thanks. Uh, that means a lot. And I'm, I'm more like a, I'm now the assistant coach on the sideline helping you all win the game. So <laughs> I may not be the quarterback anymore or the kicker, but I'm still engaged deeply in the team concept to make y'all successful. Well, you know, I think sometimes that's, that can be a more effective position than the formal leader itself often. You, yeah, know, it you, you have the ability yeah. nowadays to reach not just Fort Worth or not just Phoenix PD, but officers all around the country and officers of any rank around the country. And now, even on this podcast or in other social medias, you know, this podcast is downloaded in 90 countries. So you're reaching out today to talk to people who um, have never set foot in the U.S. even, you know, who share that wow. same struggle wow. we do, yeah. but are doing it in Australia or England or uh, all these other countries that we that we get their downloads from. So appreciate your time today. Where, should, where, do you want people, where do you want to direct people to to find out more about Hope for Blue and about uh, you yourself? Oh, great. So uh, the profession of policing and a lot of tech topics, managerial leadership, and really policing topics in general. I, I, I institute a feed every morning, and the Facebook page is called The Halstead Group. So just Google The Halstead Group, H-A-L-S-T-E-A-D. Just Google The Halstead Group. You'll find my Facebook page. I personally update all those stories, and I don't push an agenda. I don't want you to buy anything or subscribe to anything. I just share knowledge and information to make you a better informed supporter, a better informed uh, operator within a specific function, or a better informed leader. And then for the nonprofit, uh, we have our Facebook page, Hope for Blue. Uh, so you can just Hope Number Four Blue, or you can go to our website at hopeforblue.org. And then our Twitter account is at H4BNow. Uh, I actually employ with personal money a social media marketing team, and we put new headlines on Hope for Blue. Hope for Blue is about the hooray and hallelujah of law enforcement. We only post positive stories, great stories in policing, heart-touching stories about the men and women of the profession. We do not give any kind of tribute to anyone that hates this profession or despises the men and women that serve with valor. So we are all about our family of blue, and then, as you'll see, and the reason those webs, those Facebook pages are important, because in late May, when the app comes out on iTunes stores and Google Play, it is totally free, and they're going to be able to find out that information on both of those Facebook pages. And we'll make sure that we link to all of those in our show notes, too, for everybody. If they want to go to the squadroom.net uh, for the episode notes on this one, they can find you if they're driving around right now and they can't remember it later. Go to our website, the squadroom.net, and you can find all the tags for this we'll uh, share a link for the enlightened leadership book oh, and uh, all the stuff that you're doing right now jeff thank you so much for being with us uh fantastic conversation really enjoyed it and uh hopefully one of these days uh we can meet in person so i can shake your hand and uh and, and carry yeah. this on no I'll, I'll definitely come out to your way i'm out in california at least six times a year so the next time i get in the region i'm gonna I'll reach out to you on email and try to get a hold of you i look forward to it thanks for being with us all right have a great day All right, thanks for listening to The Squad Room. If you like what you heard today, if you got something out of this conversation, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Yes, I'm begging, I'm pleading. I read each and every one of them, and it really helps spread the word about the show. And, of course, it boosts my incredibly sensitive ego. 
If you heard something today that you know a friend or a loved one needs to hear, please tell them about the show. Grab their phone from them, download it to their app. You can send them a link to thesquadroom.net, and you can even email this episode directly to someone from our website. To keep up to date with the show, again, you can text the squadroom, all one word, to 44222 to get signed up for a mailing list. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at the squadroom, or on Facebook. Our job is tough, tougher than anything that can be put into a few words or covered in one podcast here. But if you want to reach out, start a conversation, or ask a question, you can reach me at Garrett, two R's, two T's, at thesquadroom.net. Lastly, I want to tell you that this episode is brought to you by Audible.com. With over 180,000 titles in their inventory, Audible has hundreds of audiobooks that apply to us. If it's a slow shift or a long commute, audiobooks are a great way to continue your education after you've listened to each and every episode of The Squadroom, of course. To get a free 30-day trial and free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com forward slash thesquadroom to sign up. Until next time, take care of each other and stay safe.